This is the Aston Martin Heritage Podcast with Wayne Scott and Gary Taylor. On this episode, the full story behind the V12 Vantage, and we hear from a younger listener to the Aston Martin Heritage Podcast. Discover more about the story of Aston Martin, amht.org.uk. Hello and welcome to episode five of the Aston Martin Heritage Podcast. I'm Wayne Scott and it's been a while since we've heard from him. Here's Gary Taylor. Hiya, Gary. Hello, Wayne. How are you doing? Very well, thanks. It feels like forever since we were sat together doing the Aston Martin Heritage Podcast, but a lot has been going on, I understand, and you've been busy out getting some amazing interviews for us. So uh, give us a preview of what we've got to come on forthcoming episodes of the podcast. Yes, it's certainly been a a very busy period during March and April. I've been getting some really great content uh, together, and this is coming up in episodes six, seven, and so on. Uh, One thing uh, that is of particular interest is that uh, myself and Steve Waddingham from Aston Martin Lagonda, uh, we went around some of the the old factory sites, and we went to Felton, and we talked about... uh, the uh, David Brown site that was there, which is now a car park, uh, but we, we got some interesting content there. Then we went to uh, Hanworth House, and this is most beautiful, uh, like a uh, uh, ancient house, which is uh, sadly in a state of ruins, but there's a great story there with, with Aston Martin. And also, just to uh, follow up on that, on that, we went to, uh, went to um, well, where do we go? We went to Sainsbury's at Staines, uh, Wayne, <laughs> I think you, you may be. And, and you're going to ask me, Gary, why did you go to Sainsbury's at Staines? Gary, why did you go to Sainsbury's at Staines? Well, I'm glad you asked me that. <laughs> and the reason I went there is because that was the site of the Lagonda factory. Amazing. And uh, we, I'm not going to give anything away. We saw the manager there and he brought something down relating to Lagonda. So we had a conversation regarding that. So there's some great pieces uh, there from the original factories. Uh, the other thing that's going to be coming up uh, sometime soon in future podcasts is the Bulldog story. Now, I was delighted to go to uh, CMC. I uh, went up there and we saw the Bulldog. Now, sadly, it was in bits, but it was because uh, it was being uh, worked on. And we spoke to the people who are helping uh, restore it, bring it back to life. And it's got a uh, grand aims uh, coming up for it to do a, a 200 mile an hour run, which absolutely will be something, won't it, Wayne? So we spoke to the people there, The how they've managed to bring it back to life, how they've enhanced some of the engineering to improve the car. And uh, we hope to get uh, an interview with one of the major players behind the Bulldog, and that will become a special feature. What will be a special feature is that I'm delighted that we have had an exclusive interview, Wayne, you'd be pleased to know. All very exciting, this. This is all very exciting. Stand by, drum roll. I don't know if you can mix in a drum roll, Wayne, but let's uh, pretend there is one. Uh, Andy Palmer. Andy Palmer has given the Aston Martin Heritage Podcast an exclusive interview about his time at uh, Aston Martin. He was only there five and a half years or so, can you believe, Wayne? Mm. Uh, But he he packed a lot into that period. Uh, So we had a conversation with him. Very grateful for his time. Interested insights, his views on the cars and uh, other matters. And that will be coming up in, uh, in a future episode. 
That's really exciting stuff because he was a man who transformed Aston Martin and brought some of the models that really did push it into a new era to fruition. So he doesn't talk in the media an awful lot these days, but we, as you say, have an exclusive with Andy Palmer. So I cannot wait to hear that. That's going to be brilliant. And I'm really pleased to hear you enjoyed your time at CMC in Bridge North there with Bulldog and... It is an amazing facility they've got there. They do all sorts of classic car restoration. And all sorts of cars there. You could spend ages looking around. They're amazing cars. It's got to the stage now with these restorations where, and CMC is a perfect example of this, where basically they're like Formula One facilities in that they are spotlessly clean. Did you notice oh, that? I, uh, yes, <laughs> it puts my garage to shame, I must say. But uh, <laughs> they, they are, aren't they? These, these premises are, you, they are, well, I think the what's the default term? It's like McLaren, just mm. absolutely pristine. It is amazing. Yeah, so we look forward to that. And of course, don't forget, you can get in touch with us here on the Aston Martin Heritage Podcast very easily via astonmartinheritagepodcast.com. That's the website that holds this podcast that you're listening to. If you've joined us through Apple, Google, or Spotify, or of course you can subscribe to get brand new episodes just as soon as we've completed putting them together for you. And all you have to do is subscribe for free on either of those platforms, anything you like, really, depending on the device that you're using. And you can join us every single time on the Aston Martin Heritage Podcast. If you go to that website, though, there is a contact button. You can fill in a form and let us know about your stories around Aston Martin. We'd love to hear from you in particular if you used to work for Aston Martin or if you have particular memories of your life or childhood or family that was involved in the mark in any way get in touch with us astonmartinheritagepodcast.com this podcast is all about collecting the stories from Aston Martin's history that's not just big bosses that sit at the top of factories that's also you <laughs> that experience Aston Martin as well do get in touch and lots of great stuff to come meanwhile lots of interesting changes at Aston Martin as we talk to you here in May 2022 Aston Martin has some new bosses because Tobias Mowers stepped down after less than two years in the CEO position, Gary. Yeah, he, he did. Uh, it's, it's, it's interesting. There was, there was speculation uh, regarding his position uh, early in the year. I think it was back in January and, and, and Autocar magazine sort of uh, scooped or suggested um, that his position was in doubt. And, and Aston Martin himself so. Uh, slammed that down and said, I don't know where he got that story from. Um, but here we are in May, and he's been there for less than two years, and now we have, we have some uh, new people uh, appointed. So Aston Martin, in, in probably in two years, have now had three CEOs, which is, um, well, I don't know, it's uh, unusual, but uh, I just hope there's some uh, stability now, but uh, that's where we are. Cars like this, th these these passionate cars need a need a passionate figurehead and, and i hope we'll get that now through uh, uh, amido felisa as the ceo tobias rolls has, has been split in half so we've got amido as the ceo and roberto fideli as the uh, chief technical officer talking of passion well they're both from ferrari you know if you talk about passions, I think Ferrari has passion in its spades, doesn't it, right? Absolutely, yeah. And, of course, they will understand the brand loyalty and the following that Aston Martin demands as well. So hopefully that will work out for the company because we always want to see Aston Martin doing well, of course. And uh, there have been other movements, of course. The DBX 707 
which we have discussed at length on this podcast as, well, really the saviour of the finances at Aston Martin in recent times. Everyone has to build an SUV, it seems, these days. That's what everyone wants to buy. Aston Martin have joined the ranks of luxury SUVs and the DBX 707, which we announced the unveiling of here on the Aston Martin Heritage podcast, has had its first customer car built. Of course, at St. Athen, where the factory is, and it's going to be heading across uh, over 50 countries globally, this vehicle. And um, a Secretary of State for Wales saw the car off the production line earlier this month. So it's all systems go for the DBX 707, and you get a bit of Welsh pride coming through with this vehicle as well, don't you? Because, of course, it has brought all sorts of joyous uh, positivity to that area of Wales. Yes, and, and I think they I think I've read somewhere that uh, they're taking on staff again in in Wales, which must be good news because I think uh, it was t- two or three years ago that they were uh, uh, releasing staff. So I think the DBX clearly has been a big success. They're taking over over fifty, or I think it's fifty four percent. Last figure I quoted of of the sale. So you know that that's where the market is. And I've heard someone someone say to me. That it's the, the the SUVs, these sports SUVs, is effectively going to be the sports car of the future. So you know, I'm, I'm not sure if if that's going to be the case, but you know, the cars are being a great success. It's working for Aston Martin, so I think we just have to applaud it. And you know, they're not going to just rest on their laurels. With so we've got the DBX, we've got the DBX 707. And there's often been some rumours that there'll be a long wheelbase version or perhaps a coupe version. These are just suggestions, nothing nothing official, just rumours. But I think we can see the DBX uh, uh, brand being extended because it has been a, a, a very favourable uh, addition to the mark. Absolutely. And of course, it marks the first of the product development phases brought about by Lawrence Stroll, who is their executive chairman. Of course, it was the he, he started this project. It's the far, first one that's happened under his control. So um, sort of a new era being beckoned in, in a way. But uh, mentioning, of course, of Lawrence Stroll brings me neatly onto Formula One and the season's underway. I don't think anyone's going to be uh, jumping up and down for Aston Martin taking the Constructors' Championship this year. But they're nice-looking cars, aren't they? They're beautiful out on track. And, of course, we've seen the Aston Martins in the support vehicle roles as well with the pace cars and everything else yeah indeed i remember you asking me when we did the uh, new year special when we did the when we did look look back and towards the end of the podcast I said gary what's going to happen for the year ahead and i said well wayne i think you will find that aston martin formula one they will have some great success this year and they will be on the podium um okay we're in may early days but i think my my prediction is is beginning to beginning to crumble but um I understand, I've seen in Autosport and other places that uh, they have brought for the Spanish Grand Prix, which is which is coming up, uh, they've brought up some major improvements for the car, uh, and it's going to be uh, driven by uh, Lance Stroll, uh, surprisingly Sebastian's not going to be um, uh, driving uh, a version of that car, so hopefully, fingers crossed, um, that, uh, that will prove uh, some great results for the year ahead, and then I can uh, feel quite smug at the end of the year (laughs) well i'm not making excuses for aston martin in formula one but let's just put this into context it is only their second season um they are relatively small car company to fund a formula one exercise let's be honest and these rules that have changed 
the face of how Formula One cars are built for this season have caught lots of people out, none least, of course, um, Mercedes, who seem to be having a torrid season so far. So it happens to the best of them. You're right. I think the the rule rule changes were going to go identify who who got it right and who got it not so much wrong but who got it better and I think Ferrari you know I think they, they came out the at the pit doors running didn't they you know they, I think they cracked it very it's, it's this porpoising that's causing the problem it's and uh, they've managed to, to nail that fairly early on so I think when we get to about mid-season I think you know the other teams will 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 not so much get their act together we'll find a solution and I think we'll find it much more close uh, racing so yeah you're right I think th- these rule changes have changed the game uh, tremendously and of course it makes it far more exciting you know rather than I like Mercedes I like Lewis Hamilton you know I like to see these things win but it's it's good to see some other people up front isn't it besides Formula One Aston Martin's success in motorsport continues in sports car racing and of course there are three teams running Aston Martins this year in the World Endurance Championship TF Sport Northwest AMR and De Station Racing and at Spa there was Aston Martins on the podium in particular Ben Keating uh, Henrik Shaves and uh, of course the works driver Marco Sorensen uh, they were amongst the quickest GT cars out at Spa there's Paul Dallalana David Pittard and Nicky Tim in the Northwest AMR car as well um and they're all doing really well. Sebring winners, uh, podium positions at Spa, so lots of success still happening within sports car racing for Aston Martin, albeit not perhaps with a works team, but certainly a works-supported privateer, if that makes any sense. Uh, but Aston Martin, that's kind of their natural home, isn't it, really? We've seen them come to provenance over that for the last 20 years, really, since the very early 009, 008 and 007 Oh, yeah, I remember cars. that. I remember going to Silverstone to watch that we're going to get misty eyed if we're not careful (laughs) (laughs) of course it's Le Mans next month as well isn't it it is indeed yes I'm not going going? this year unfortunately I've got a a gig at Silverstone doing commentary unfortunately so I won't be there but I'm saving myself up for next year because ladies and gentlemen if you are anywhere Le Mans fan don't miss next year just drop everything and go because next year is the centenary a hundred years of the 24 hour race I'll see you on the ferry because I'm definitely going this year. I did. I did have plans for this year, but uh, other things are sort of conflicting, and I think Le Mans had to had to uh, be part to one side. But 100% next year, uh, I'll see you on the ferry, Wayne. Can't wait for it. It's going to be fantastic, and it's going to be a great opportunity to celebrate some of the amazing British cars that have made huge waves at Le Mans over the years, and least, of course, in the late 1950s with Aston Martin. So uh, we'll yeah, do more yeah. on that on the podcast in future episodes as we lead up to that 100th anniversary of the 24 Hours of Le Mans. But we've got a nice view on who is listening to our podcast. And I think it's fair to say, Gary, that mainly they are Aston Martin fans who are old enough and ugly enough to own one uh, but occasionally we do get some young listeners contacting us and we, we do. did hear from one young listener called spencer fish i understand your better half jane nichols went off to meet him 
Trust Talk. We take you behind the scenes at the Aston Martin Heritage Trust. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you first became interested in cars and, of course, particularly in Aston Martin? Well, ever since a young age, I've really enjoyed Aston Martins and it's been my favourite brand of car for a long time now, as long as I can think, basically. I remember my first ever experience in Aston Martin was in your old DB7, which was... Was it? Six. DB6. Six. Six. <laughs> and... It was a really good experience, although I did really enjoy the ice cream, to be fair. Well, I went to Silverstone with you um, and Gary, and that was, I think, really... I really enjoyed that experience. It was one of the best experiences I've ever had, um, not just with cars, but probably ever. Um, I got to go around in a new V12 Vantage, and I mean very new V12 Vantage, black. It was very nice. Um, And I remember very kind man Jeff he um, is very nice in letting me sit next to him for the whole time going around Silverstone um, um, was that was a parade lap was it on an on an Amok event yeah. and I remember I was wearing my full Aston Martin driving suit kind of thing tracksuit um, and I remember you and Gary were in the signet um, it was yeah very very nice and I remember that whole day um, that was probably the best experience because I, I think I remember then going to the owners club after that and getting a few bits and bobs. You've also your grandfather has taken you out to various places to Goodwood hasn't he? I remember at Goodwood I think that's probably where one of my first um, memories of really getting into Aston Martin I remember there um, seeing very old Aston Martin um, and I just fell in love with it at first sight basically it was a very beautiful car it was beautifully made, had a beautiful paint job, um, and that kind of sparked my um, love for Aston Martin. I know that you're particularly interested in the history of Aston Martin. Do you like the fact that you you have a book and you've read all about the beginnings and the David Brown era and how the cars have developed? Tell me a bit about that and how that has influenced your love of Aston Martin. I actually prefer the older, much um, yeah, older cars to the newer ones because I find them more historic and I find them it really shows the pureness and what Aston Martin's all about it's about racing it's about sports cars it's about uh, beautiful um, road cars that basic uh, full English um, and are probably the most English cars I can think of really and also I think you've told me once about the Le Mans victories yes. that you enjoyed. So there was obviously the 1950s, 60s era where Aston Martin had Le Mans victory and also quite recently actually with the um, Le Mans victories in the amateur and um, the classic pros. Um, and yeah, I can remember they were all in their G, um, V12 Vantage GTs um, and yeah, I think it's it. It's a good trademark for, um, or a good um, way to show, really, Aston Martin. It's It's got an F1 team, it's um, racing in Le Mans. Is there any way that this love of yours, which is becoming a passion, has influenced what you'd like to do in the future? Definitely has. Um, ever since probably I was um, five or six kind of thing, um, I got into... I really enjoyed engineering and that kind of mechanic role and mixing that with my love of Aston Martin, um, my 
career that I really want to pursue is to be an astrobotic mechanic and to get that um, role would be my dream come true. You're listening to the Aston Martin Heritage Podcast. Discover more about the story of Aston Martin, the cars, the people, the history with the Aston Martin Heritage Trust. You're always welcome to visit us at our museum in Oxfordshire. So find out more via amht.org.uk. Well, Gary, they say from big dreams by small people come amazing geniuses. And perhaps Spencer (laughs) is the genius that is waiting to be a future Aston Martin engineer. You just never know, do you? It's great to hear his enthusiasm. Oh, he is. And and he's a bright lad. And and annoyingly, he is very good at everything he does, and which I find very frustrating. Because when I was 12 years old, I was rubbish at everything. Um, So, uh, yeah, Spencer... Thank you very much for that, and uh, keep listening. Fantastic. Don't forget, you can keep listening as well via AstonMartinHeritagePodcast.com. You can also subscribe, just as Spencer did, by clicking on the Listen on Apple, Listen on Google, or Listen on Spotify podcast button to subscribe to receive each episode of this podcast for free automatically as soon as they're ready for you and we've spoken a lot about motorsport on episode five already a little bit more motorsport for you now because we couldn't do this episode without having a little tribute to tony brooks who passed away at the age of 90 on the 3rd of may 2022 uh they referred to him gary didn't they as the the racing dentist because of his (laughs) professional life before motorsport I'm not really aware of, of any other driver that would have been, you know, has, has always been constantly referred to their their part-time profession. I can't think of one, but uh, Tony was always referred to as the racing dentist, and it, and it's and it seemed to have stuck. I, I, I guess he was fine with that. He, he was a he was a fairly quiet and a publicity shy man. So you know, being known as a racing dentist, why not? Um, and. His own his on track performances, they just spoke for him. They just spoke themselves. I mean, he he was very very good. Six Grand Prix victories across thirty nine races between nineteen fifty six and nineteen sixty one led Sterling Moss to refer to him as the greatest little known driver of all time. But of course, we're talking about him because of course he raced for Aston Martin as well, and he he won the one thousand kilometer in at the Nurburgring in nineteen fifty seven and the nineteen fifty eight RAC Tourist Trophy as well with Sterling Moss, didn't he? He, uh, he did in the, in the Aston Martin DBR1. Um, he, he was he was less successful at Le Mans in in, in fifty seven uh, because there was an accident uh, uh, in that year's twenty four hour race, um, and it brought about a change in his uh, racing uh, philosophy. He, he was a devout Catholic, and he he vowed that he would never race again uh, if his life was at risk with a car that wasn't. Uh, should we say in sound condition, which was always seems to be our odds, uh, Wayne, to how sterling. He, I mean, he loved the risk, he loved the danger. Whereas Tony sort of said, I'm not quite really prepared to go that far. As long as the car is sound and I'm happy with it, I will race, but I'm not going to do unnecessary risks. So, um, it was uh, so he did, um, very much. Uh, I would say held himself back, but uh, he he was a storming driver, a fantastic driver, and to get an acknowledgement from Sterling Sterling Moss 
to say uh, the greatest little known driver of all time I, I think that's a compliment um, is uh, is something in itself well it was a great shock to the motorsport community when in 1961 before his 30th birthday he announced yeah. that he was going to retire from motorsport and go back to running the garage back at home but he was a family man wasn't he and he he always wanted to make sure that there was enough of him left for the family and i think he'd seen so many tragic consequences of motorsport on families through that era of course it was an era where you were lucky to come back from a race quite frankly tony brooks just before his 30th birthday packed it in and he was the last surviving grand prix winner from the 1950s wasn't he because of course we lost sterling in 2020 and that was the last one of them that, that, that that's very true it's quite it's quite an amazing uh, statistics it's rather sad uh and I believe uh, I think I think someone will shoot me down in flames. I'm sure he appeared at one of the Aston Martin Heritage Trust uh, lectures, and uh, I think he was there uh, talking about his career and he um, promoting his his book. And I'm just going to uh, lean away, just play some uh, soft music while I try and find it. And yes, I found it. It's called uh, Poetry in Motion. Uh, a lovely book. Uh, I'm sure it's still available uh, on your favourite online retailer, and. He talked about his career, and he is a, a thoroughly engaging, quiet uh, person, and and uh, be sorely missed. Uh, we're losing uh, we're losing the greats, aren't we? We are indeed. Tony Brooks, then, who died third of May, twenty twenty two, at the age of ninety. We like to tell stories here on the Aston Martin Heritage Podcast. This is what it's all about, sharing the stories and the tales from the history of one of the most revered motoring brands in the world. And on to our next story now, the story of the V12 Vantage. And you, Gary, went to catch up with two blokes who know all about this particular Aston Martin model, didn't you? Yes, I did. It's very topical. I think we spoke about it in, a, in an earlier podcast, about the V12 Vantage. Its latest version was launched, or announced, I should say, back in, uh, I think it was December or something like that. And then it went quiet. You think, well, you know, what's happened to the car? Anyway, uh, this week, uh, in, in May, uh, uh, in about the third week of May or so, um, the car has been shown. Uh, the customers have seen it. It's been out for driving impressions. So it is very topical. And we wanted to cover the story of the V12 Vantage because, Wayne, the V12 Vantage, the big engine in the relatively small car, has a very special tempo in Aston Martin history. It was one of those unique cars that is, it will always have a great following. So what we did, spoke to Steve Waddingham from Aston Martin Lagonda and uh, Guy Jenner from HWM Aston Martin at Waterton-on-Thames and they discussed, we talked about, and uh, followed the Aston Martin V12 Vantage story right from the very beginning, from the uh, from its original concept that was announced at the Design Studio. Immerse yourself in the rich heritage of Aston Martin. The cars, the people, the history. The Aston Martin Heritage Podcast. Steve, the design studio uh, opening in 2007 was a, was a fantastic event because it was the only Aston Martin design studio that has ever, ever created because they always subcontracted it out. But also at that time, we had an announcement of a fantastic new car, didn't we? Yes, that's right. Yeah, so prior to 2007, um, 
we haven't had a, a styling studio ever, really. I mean, probably the last time anything was ever designed in-house would have been in the 1950s, uh, and they wouldn't have had a studio as such. So yeah, big, big moment in Aston history. Um, and in order to, um, to have something to really show on the night, um, the, the car that was ready to show project-wise was the car that we uh, call the RS Concept. Um, which um, showcased the idea of a V12 engine in the Vantage body shell. And was it just was it just a concept? Was there was there an inkling that we could put it into production? I think at that point it, it really was a kind of working concept, and it was a, a kind of dipping a toe in the water to see if there would be any interest around the world in that type of car. Um, and obviously, very quickly, even on the night, there were people saying, "I want one of those." And it just rippled out from there, really. Guy, you 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 experienced that ripple, I understand. I did, yeah, no, uh, absolutely. I mean, it's it, it was a really exciting product um, for Aston Martin, and, and the the design, the styling was just right. And they launched it in this colour called Mako Blue, and Mako Blue was this light sort of glittery blue that just showed the contours and the muscles of the Vantage body so well um, and it looked aggressive because it sat 15 millimeters lower it had big air vents four big air vents in the yeah. bonnet that that was the subtle but very muscular message that the car sent that there was something serious under the bonnet and it had new wheels it just it looked really really spot on so yeah I mean the, 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 we had this this launch evening um, at Gaydon and Betts uh, as chief exec then his statement when he announced the car was this is the ultimate performance interpretation of the Vantage range combining our most agile model with our most powerful engine it represents the definitive driving package providing spectacular performance to ensure dynamic thrilling and everyday usable driving. And actually that's, that's a pretty good summary of the car. So I think off the back of the, the great feedback they got on the evening there, the car was pushed for production. And so it went to Geneva the following year. So the, the, uh, the, the launch party was December 2007. 2007, so it means March. 2008 Geneva you got it yeah and the car ended up in the, the stand there and that's where I can remember being at the dealership was it the same RS concept same RS concept yeah and I can remember being at the dealership and getting calls from members of the team on on the Aston Martin stand saying guy we've got a customer here who just wants to buy this car can you take a deposit and so you know I got multiple phone calls across the week where people were just getting so excited about what they saw and um couldn't resist. What, what, what do you think, Steve and Guy? What, what do you think? What was, what was the appeal behind this? I mean, the, the V8 version was no slouch. There yep. was always there was the V12 uh, DB9 at the time. Yes, uh, that wasn't too shabby either. Yeah. Uh, was it just this? I suppose we all uh, like the idea of a big engine in a relatively small car. Do you think it just? Yeah. It just pulled at those strings. So like a hot rod, really. Hot rod, yeah. The Aston Martin hot rod, if you look at it, it's a sh the smallest car, the biggest engine. Yes. You know, and it just delivered it with such a big punch, you know. And people just didn't didn't make cars like that in, in two thousand and eight. They they don't they don't even make cars like that now, really, generally speaking. So 
and there was a fantastic um, piece that Jeremy Clarkson did on Top Gear when he when he first drove the production version. Yeah. And if, if you haven't seen it, go on to YouTube and find it. And it's got this lovely music playing, the sort of classical music, and he's wafting along in this you know spectacular sort of hill range, saying they're not going to make cars like this anymore any longer. This is the end of an era. Now. As it turned out, he was a fair few years uh, too early with that one because obviously the era continues and with the new car that's coming. Um, but I suppose, generally speaking, he wasn't far off because we all know that we're heading towards a point with car transportation where you know things could potentially get less exciting in terms of noise and the, the thrill of a big throbbing engine under the bonnet. So. You know, yeah, in a, in a funny kind of way, he, he did kind of hit the nail on the head a little bit with that car. Um, but it was a, just a beautiful bit of Top Gear, the complete opposite to the usual Top Gear stuff that you It was, it was uh, uh, just uh, it was a cinematic moment. It was just silence yeah. other than the car and this beautiful music, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. It was, it, was, it, uh, it was a lovely moment. I, and I think, I th think one of the the other critical aspects of the car is that manual gearbox. So I think there was two things going on there. So it started with a manual gearbox, is it? It started with a manual gearbox. So at this point, it, actually, its engine and running gear and so on were very closely related to DBS, which was a manual at that point too. Um, and if you looked at the marketplace in general, if you went out to try and buy a, a manual sports car of a V12 engine, and there really wasn't a great deal out there, if anything. No. So um, it, was, it was a unique offering. And I think that that's what really hit home, um, and the fact that it, it just yeah it had the potential to be a bit of an animal, mm. and we like cars that are a bit of an animal. Did um, in your experience did it attract custom from other other marks? It, yes, it did, um, and it probably changed the demographics slightly to DBS because you know DBS was a what might be considered a super GT manual. The thing about the V12 Vantage manual was that it was more focused. So it had a shorter wheelbase, which made it uh, more nimble and a bit twitchier, but we can come back to that. Um, it, it, it had fixed rate dampers, so it was kind of firm or firm. So you had to want that, that driving experience. And so, yeah, we, we, we certainly saw people come from different brands. Um, we also had the odd customer that bought V12 manual and decided to return it and think about something a little bit more um, restrained. Yeah, I remember a few people like that, Vanquish owners in particular, yeah. previous Vanquish owners, and they go, oh yeah, oh, yeah, I'll have, the, I'll have the new V12, definitely, thinking it was going to be a, like a Vanquish, which was a GT really, Yeah. and then find themselves silly in it and bring it back and, and change into something, something, something else basically, you know. Yeah. Um, the other thing I remember as well, thinking about it is, I remember meeting a lot of people that, that when you said, what do you normally drive? The answer was, well, actually, I'm into bikes. I've got super bikes, yes. got Ducatis and big, you know, monster kind of road bikes. And um, and they were getting, they were looking for something less likely to kill themselves in or on, yeah. you know, and a sports car that actually turned them on because they were used to that kind of thrill of riding a big, um, powerful bike. So I remember a lot of, a lot of serious bikers buying V12s and quite often having both, of course, you know. Yeah. But yeah, I, I, I remember that. And the other thing I remember are people that used to buy them and then do a road trip with them. There's a real road trip car, you know, where you drive to Geneva rather than go on EasyJet. You know? Yeah. And, um, and and every journey would be an adventure, you know, like you would if you could throw your gear onto a motorbike and, and tour, you know. 
So yeah, I remember that being a very different client base to all the other um, cars that we were selling at the time, you know. I think you're spot on. Interestingly, notable owners that I can think of. Um, Adrian Newey had one. Guy Martin. Guy Martin, a, um, yeah. the famous TT rider. Uh, Guy Martin famously bought his V12 before he bought a house. <laughs> I mean, he had it, that man had his priorities right. Didn't I think he? didn't he li- yeah. live in like a barn with a hammock and a V12? Uh, what more right. do you need? Steve? <laughs> yeah, that's, exactly. yeah, that's fine. Run yeah. after me, own um, heart. Um, um, you make it sound like a bad thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I can think of a, a few similar stories to that. To that, actually, maybe not as extreme as a hammock in a barn, but yeah, it's definitely people that put everything into the car because they really wanted one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, very kind of car. different. Real, like a cult car from the word go, wasn't it? Yes, it was. And, and I, I think starting with the the original RS concept, what I mean, Aston did not hold back. So it was it was even more hardcore than the final production car. So it had been, to set the tone, it had been stripped out so it didn't have ABS, it had no aircon, yeah. no infotainment system. Um, so it weighed 1,600 kilos. Final production car weighed 1,680. So it was 80 kilos lighter, but you suffered for those um, 80 kilos that were stripped out of that, that, that original car. Um, it was, it had a, a DBRS9 engine in it, didn't it, that put yeah. out 580 brake horsepower. Yeah, that's true, yes. Um, so it was, I mean, it was a real statement of intent. Um, so they, they had to soften it for production, didn't they? Yeah, I, I think, you know. It, Relatively. It, yeah, exactly. I mean, air conditioning, for instance, you, yeah. you definitely want that in a, in a, in a car with a big V12 engine getting very warm at the front you know so yeah but it was um, even the softened version is still hardcore really, very much it? so yeah. yeah yeah very much so so I, I think the interesting things about V12 first of all so driving experience the first thing that I really liked about a V12 the first time I drove it was actually not how it went but how it stopped so it had these amazing carbon ceramic brakes that were also on the DBS, but this time yeah. the V12 Vantage, they were stopping at a lighter car. And it was one of the fastest decelerating cars you could possibly buy. Yeah. And to go fast, you need to be able to stop, and it yeah. gives you that confidence. And a bit like how the DB4 that. GT was back in its day, really, that was a car at the time that had, I think it set a record for going naught to 100 naught, you know. In yes, that was it, that was, that was, that was a, so it's always a, a figure of yeah, it was something that Aston always tried to get right over the years with brakes, but, but yeah, you're right, they were, it was really noticeable, wasn't it, in the V12? It was, yeah. yeah, I think, in fact, I've got a quote from Steve Cropley, he said, Steve Cropley of Autocar, I, I should mention, but he's, um, he's extremely well known and uh, an incredibly experienced journalist. He said, the brakes are phenomenal. They simply eliminate speed like nothing I've ever experienced, squeezing the car into the road and making you hang forward on the straps. And that was it. I mean, that was so true. Mm, yeah. Um, I, must, I must admit, it's a car that I remember driving for the first time and literally getting out with a massive grin. In fact, laugh out loud, I think, was invented for, for that car because it was just like, wow, this is crazy what this, what this car can do. Um, I yeah. Would- just I remember my, my experience in a, in a V12 Vantage, um, Aston Martin rang me up and said, would I like to have one for the Silverstone Classic? Did you have to think about that for a long time? Well, you know, <laughs> I, I looked at my diary and I said, okay. <laughs> and um, I was driving a, a Jaguar XJR V8 supercharged. Mm, that's still a quick car. Yeah. Very nice. Yeah. So I drove up the gate 
And um, it didn't have a sport button, but it, which it, it did have mm. a sport button. Did, yeah. So you wafted up there listening to Frank Sinatra and you pressed the sport button and it would politely cough and say, oh, are you sure, sir? And it would just move on a bit faster. Yeah. Anyway, I left the car at Gaydon. Uh, they gave me the, just threw me the key to the V12 Vantage. said, got it for the weekend, see you Monday. And I started it up, and my, my goodness, I mean, it was a totally different experience to the XJ, uh, XJR. And I just got on in the M40, yeah. going to Silverstone, and I was gently accelerating, and I noticed the sport button. <laughs> And I thought, what does that do? Is it like the Jaguars? Yeah. yeah. Anyway, as I had to explain to the judge soon after, <laughs> I mean, seriously, it just lifted up. And I think, um, Guy, wasn't it a matter of you had, was it about 90% of the action in 25% of the throttle movement? It just tightened. It leapt forward, didn't it? It I'm just leapt forward. Yeah. Man. Wow. Like someone just pushed you in the back. Yes. And yeah. just by pressing the button, just and the button, and yeah. gentlest movement on the throttle, phenomenal, yeah. phenomenal. You're exactly right. It just it shortened the travel of the throttle in yeah. effect. So you, yeah, you'd get at half. I think at half throttle you'd get full. Yeah, full power. If you're listening to this button. and you haven't driven one yet, when you drive one. Don't press that button until you're ready. <laughs> don't make sure it's a straight bit of road <laughs> yes, yeah. and you're ready for it because it will make you smile. Yes, <laughs> don't press the red button. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, so they, amazing. they do have um, a name for being a bit spiky, which is worth talking about. They're not uncontrollable. It's just they were, first, the cars were delivered on Pirelli P0 courses, which would dry bias tyre. So as soon as there was a bit of moisture in the air, mm. Then a fog, a fog, <laughs> yeah, um, just something on the horizon. Yeah, exactly. yeah. Um, the car would certainly be a bit more mobile and keener to rotate. Yeah, um, it, which sounds like a bad thing. It it didn't make them undrivable, but if you wanted to drive them hard in in adverse weather conditions, you definitely needed to bring your A game. Um, but I think I think the other thing that's changed over the years is tyre tech has, has yeah. changed. So now you you know if you if you were concerned about a car like that being a bit spiky, you could probably put it on some newer um, tyres um, that that would change that aspect of the car. Yeah. What yeah. tyre technology in that short space of time? Definitely. You think? Yeah. 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 For sure. So you could. You could. Yeah. You can definitely change that characteristic. But actually, there are plenty of people who find it fun. So uh, and it's got wonderful steering. You kind of know what's happening. But cars that have got shorter wheelbases become um, more and more difficult to catch in a in a slide so um, that that's that's the d downside to agility I suppose yeah. but it does make it fun, make it fun. <laughs> and one thing I would say I'd have a practical tip for anybody listening if you're a v12 owner or a DBS owner if you've got one of the more hairy v12 cars and you've had it for a while if you suddenly start thinking that things are getting a bit more scary yeah the grip front yeah. you know maybe you've something's happened on a journey and you think that's weird I've never done that before have a good look at your tyres. Don't don't look at the tread, but work out how old the tyres are. Find yeah. out how old they are. Yeah. Because over a period of years, the, the rubber compound starts to, to, to change and then the grip goes down. So you can have miles of tread left on them, um, but if they're old and you've got a low mileage car, the question when that's, those tyres were... Point. because these, these tyres... So you'd be amazed. Time. I've known people that have nearly sold their car, but then 
been advised to change the tyres and they're falling back in love with the car because yeah. suddenly it grips differently yeah. and it's not scary anymore. So if you have scared yourself in a V12 car recently, check your tyres. Don't look at the tread, check the age of them, check your dealer if you need to. They've got date stamps yeah, on them. I think that's good point. And yeah, it's so really it's worth putting point. a new set of boots on if, if you're in that category. Yes. So there you go, it's a little tip from the tip from the Wadders. Uh, yeah, that's a good show. Wadders tip number one. So we've got the, so the car, how, how long was the first generation in, in production for? So it was 2009 until 2013. Right. Um, and they made in total just under 1,100 coupes, I think 1,099 coupes in total, uh, which isn't many. I mean, just to put that in perspective, a coveted car from another brand, a Ferrari F40, well, they made 1,300 Ferrari F40, so it gives you, gives you an idea of how really? rare yeah, you do tend to think the F40 being very rare. Yeah, which I guess it, it is relatively mm. in, in, in the overall scheme of things, but, but a V12 Vantage is rarer still. Yeah. Another, another little thing I'll just think of as we're talking about rarity. I meet people a lot that are looking for a car, and they come along and they say, yeah, what I really like is um, I like dark exterior colours and light interior colours. Yeah. So in their head, they're thinking they're going to buy a, a midnight blue car with cream truffle interior. Yeah. What you don't realise is we may not have made one, or yeah. we may have made one, <laughs> yes. or two, or five, or whatever. So if you're looking to buy a, a, an Aston, a used one, always keep a very open mind on colour schemes, Yeah. because what you think you want, you may not find one. Yeah. And I had a guy I met recently who wanted a dark blue car, I won't say what model it is, it was a dark blue car with a dark blue interior. Mm -hmm. That's probably the ultimate colour combination on this particular model. And he found the car, he bought it, and when I looked at it, it was the only one ever made. Wow. So he'd waited 18 months and by you know, sheer luck, he must have found the car, the yeah. only one. You know, so again, if you're listening, you're looking to buy a car, keep as open a mind as you possibly can on colour schemes, because otherwise you could be in for a long wait uh, for a car that may, may or may not exist, or maybe in the wrong country, or not for sale, you know. Yeah, great advice. So there we go. I'm sure you've probably come across the uh, same sort of thing. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. I, I, and I think it's just an adjustment. But you're right. I, I would always seek to buy the right car rather than the right colour. Yeah. yeah. I think that's yeah, probably the primary driver. Yeah. So it's just that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah I, interesting, Gary. You asked me why why did people want a V12. I thought there was a really good summary. This is what would get me with a V12. This is from Evo magazine when they tested the car. I was going to quote it. It said. They said, why it has six forward gears is anyone's guess. Four would suffice. With 420 foot-pounds dragging such a dainty aluminium structure, it can pull away in third and obliterate hot hatches from 1,000 RPM in fourth. Sign me up. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So is it Great summary, though, isn't absolutely it? What a V12 yeah, yeah, engine is all about. Yeah. 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 Six gears, but you don't really need all of them. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah. No. yeah, yeah, fabulous. Excellent. So that so 2013 is where. Oh, before before we jump into that, I mean, yeah. it, it, did it affect DB9 cells? Um, so I don't think it, it, it felt like it affected DB9 sales. Um, Price-wise, it was 135,000 pounds when it was first launched V12 Vantage. Um, so it was probably 35k more than a typical V8 Vantage. Right. So quite a step up in price, I guess, in percentage terms. Um, and DB9 was just a very different car. So to my mind, the car that was closest to it really was DBS manual. Yes. 
but I think if you were drawn to DBS manual and it's such a beautiful car I just think that's the car that you, you'd buy so it, it, it felt like quite a unique offering and had its own niche within right, the range right. yeah. so sorry you were about to say uh, next generation well I, I was, I was going to mention there was um, a Roadster variant yes indeed so they, they, they announced a Roadster variant they made 101 versions of the Roadster that was in 2012 and it was a slightly different spec um, it had a few more bits so it had some carbon fibre um, side strokes and mirror caps it had glass switches the option of a um, reverse parking camera this was cutting edge for Aston Martin at yeah. that point so it's funny uh, isn't it you yeah. don't forget <laughs> yeah. the camera was like wow a camera. <laughs> yeah, absolutely different wheels and it had slightly tweaked damping as well so it it, but just 101 of those yeah, roasters were yeah, made yeah. and they were £150,000. Actually, they were a really good bike. Yeah, I, I think that's almost like the modern version of a short chassis yeah. Volante. So the car called a short chassis Volante is 37 of them and they are just the connoisseurs kind of convertible Aston Martin really and they, they sit between DB5 and DB6 but they're rare as hen's teeth um, and really I remember that car being like that one that you could tell by the people coming in to buy them. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the people who bought those cars had already got other Astons, yeah. you know, V12 Astons, including Vanquish or, or V12 or DBS. Uh, and they weren't necessarily buying it instead of, they were buying it to go with. Yes. And they were like, absolutely sign me up because it's not a lot more money than the coupe. Yeah. And you're gonna make 101 of them, you know, and they're not all gonna be in the UK or they'll be roughly a third, a third of a third. So yeah, you know, seriously rare car from the word go, and they also rode really nicely on the on the different dampers. I mean that yeah. that actually made it slightly more forgiving and made it a really rapid but also comfortable sports touring sort of car, really, wasn't it? So yeah, yeah that's one of my top tips. If someone said what car to to go out and buy for a, for a future, you know, car to hopefully watch it go up in value. I would say definitely one of those as being one of the modern classic Astons that will probably one day become a real collector's piece. So Steve's choice is a, a Roadster V12. Mine is a V12 Coupe with carbon Kevlar seats. Okay, you know, the, uh, that's because you ride uh, road bikes, uh, racing bikes on a razor blade kind of saddle. I, I, yeah, exactly, I adore <laughs> discomfort. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> Have you seen the, the size of me? I think yeah. I need a bit more comfort, you know. But, but yeah, I can get, I can imagine that as to, to get the full, uh, you know, feeling of the of, of what the car could do. Yeah, that's right. So those those seats were seventeen kilograms lighter. So they save weight, but you, although they're slightly less forgiving than the standard sports seats, you get more feedback through the yeah. chassis, so you feel and just they weren't uncomfortable. In. They they were no. actually quite nice to sit on, weren't they? Yeah, I agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah so that would be my choice. Um, but I, I completely agree about the roadster. I think it, it, it it's a wonderful buy. Yeah, yeah. There's one car in particular that. I've sort of followed it over the years. I showed it to the first owner um, being built. And um, if you're listening, Ian, hello, Ian. <laughs> I'm sure you recognise this already. A lovely, lovely car. Just yeah. a real beautiful spec. And then that car then later on was, was bought by somebody that I worked with, funny enough. And he had it for a while. And then I think the car sold again recently. But what a, you know, just a fabulous looking car. Um, with all those clues, I know the car, and it is. You know the yeah, car, yeah, yeah. I mean. Yeah, it yeah. is a fantastic yeah. looking car. But yeah. yeah, and there were some really amazing, lovely, subtle um, specs. 
and there were a few outrageous ones and there were a yeah. few cute ones I seem to remember like white with red carbon fibre yeah. um, bits on it so there's something for everybody there really and also some brightly coloured cars but yeah fabulous things and you break all that down into single figures for, for, for cars in certain colour schemes and hand of drive and you know that sort of thing yeah but yeah what a great car so that takes us to 2013 where all of a sudden there was a dramatic change to V12 it became the V12 Vantage S mm-hmm. um, there's lots of changes to the car but the big one is that it went from being a sport sh- uh, sorry a manual to a sport shift gearbox a right. seven speed sport shift gearbox and this was driven primarily there was a there's always been this love of racing within the company and inevitably a sport shift gearbox an automated gearbox is faster on track than a manual and that was would you have guessed see from Aston's point of view that was the primary driver it was the fastest way to get around a racetrack was to have automated absolutely I mean you know people still crave for a manual gear shift yeah. Um, but actually talk to a racing driver yeah. they won't remember the last time they used a gear lever no. because cars just don't have racing cars don't have gear levers anymore you know yes. and it, it, yeah that was a fabulous box and I've always liked the panel shift cars but I, I kind of was very um, very fortunate to drive the Vanquish from, from literally job one the original Vanquish and that gearbox if you know what you were doing with it was really rewarding yeah. but this was so much you know further on developed than that and so it was really a fabulous thing. If you if you could master a paddle shift car, drive a, a sport shift free gearbox in the V12S and, and then try and tell me that you'd want anything else, because it, it's just brilliant. And I remember a very interesting evening spent in a, in a very early V12S. Uh-huh. And I remember thinking, right, you need to slow down. This is getting a bit out of hand now, because it just goaded you into just going, you know, further and further into the envelope of what the car could do so yeah amazing bit of kit I think for for me the sport shift um, it's not an auto so people who were looking for an automatic gearbox frankly they'd find it a bit disappointing but I remember I remember this from the, from the previous podcast yeah. an earlier podcast we did that, to emphasise that sport shift is still a manual gearbox yeah exactly that drive it on the paddles interact with the throttle yeah you, you've got to learn how to drive it but when you do as Steve said it, it's super rewarding and it's great fun um, it's certainly more rewarding than a traditional automatic or dual clutch transmission so yeah I, I, I've got a soft spot for it as well I think it's one of those gearboxes that did get mixed reactions because, again, I think I think a few people came to it expecting it to be an auto, and if that's what you expected, you'd probably have been disappointed. Mm, yeah. Um, but but great gearbox. Look at the D button and, and think of it as D for don't. Yeah. Don't yeah. press it. <laughs> yeah. Because actually, you're in order to. So there's two buttons you mustn't press. <laughs> yeah. Don't press the, the drive button because really and truly, if you if you are trying to multitask and take a phone call or whatever. You know, and, and let it drive automatically. You've still got to think what the car's going to do, yeah. and allow it to. You've almost got to lift off when you think it's going to change gear. Yes. So you might as well just take control of it yourself, because if you've got to think like that anyway, just tell them you're going to phone them back later. Yeah. You know, or put the phone on silent and just drive it. Yeah. Just flip the paddles. And Get just, caught in the moment. Yeah. Yeah. But it's so much nicer to drive. And I've heard real horror stories of people buying uh, V8 and V12 sport shift cars and being buying them from a you know from a non-Aston dealer uh-huh. and just being told yeah just when you're ready just press the D take the handbrake off 
touch the throttle and off you go. Yeah. You know, and, and actually people have mistakenly bought them thinking they're an auto. Yes. And not, you know, it's just really worries me how many people are in that category and if you're listening and you are in that category get in touch with us yeah and we'll try and give you some tips and advice of how to drive it correctly and i'm sure guy if anyone's local pop in and see you you'll happily show them what to do absolutely and it's dead easy once you know how and so rewarding yes as you as you kind of master it and, and get it right and you know yeah you, you, it's such a great car to drive that, that gearbox yes so there's the gearbox. So it, it, it is quite a big change with, with this. So it had more power as well. So it was a 510 brake horsepower uh, engine in the, the original V12 Vantage manual. What had been um, used in the range subsequently was a more powerful version of the V12 engine in Vanquish. The new Vanquish, we'll call it Vanquish 2. Uh, and that had 565 brake horsepower. So they put the 565 brake horsepower engine into V12 Vantage S. And I mean, it made what was a quick car staggeringly quick. How much more? I can't remember. How much more was that from the original V12? So or 55 brake horsepower more. 55. And if I remember rightly, we put a, a different silencer at the back, which took a bit of weight out of the exhaust system. Borrowed from the 177. Yeah. Yeah, which was pretty cool. <laughs> There's an exhaust to borrow yeah. onto, a, onto a, you know, a fairly, you know, what was a standard model in the range, and it gets a million plus pound car, um, you know. It's awesome. Piece of jewelry, it's yeah. So yeah. it just got better and better. It made it, it even look, you know, even more of a soundtrack, and it was lighter. Yes. Which didn't exactly slow it down, did it? So you know, yeah. No. Perfect and then with, with the seven-speed gearbox, you it then enabled them to have a, a higher top gear. So this was a car. If you, if you look at, I think, I think V12 Vantage and V12 Vantage S are quite subtle in their aesthetics. They're muscular, but they're restrained. But it it was a 205 mile an hour car. It was enormously quick. <laughs> so um, it Roadster was a little slower, it was 201 miles an hour. Yeah. Or with the roof down, maximum of 195. <laughs> Bit restrictive that, isn't it? You've got to, got to get the roof up. Yeah. Full, yeah, full experience. Yeah, yeah, I could yeah. see the reason in that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for those not in a hurry. <laughs> for those not in a hurry, yeah. Um, so, so S, more power different gearbox the other big change was they fitted adaptive damping so adaptive damping solved that problem of the original v12 being firm or firm it was never too firm for me but people did comment that it was a bit firm yeah. so all of a sudden you could have softer damping or you could firm it up to even firmer than the original v12 when you right. wanted to to drive spiritedly mm. um, so aston have across the years have um, use this phrase again and again but it's about breadth of ability that sort of broader um, uh, set of attributes which just made the S a more usable prospect yeah and then of course we did what we said we wouldn't do which was made a roadster version of it yes which was a little bit controversial to begin with but I uh, think those that were maybe a little bit aghast then forgave us and, and it was another great great car and I can remember driving one back from Millbrook with a roof down um, and there's a bit of dual carriageway that goes to Milton Keynes with a like a sort of fairly high concrete wall in the central reservation. Yeah. And blasting along with the noise ricocheting off the concrete, you know, with the roof down, it was just unbelievable, you know. So yeah, I mean that was another way of it, of enjoying all that com combination of the 177 exhaust, more power, you know, sports shift gearbox with the roof down. 
That's another another great <laughs> car. Brilliant. <laughs> the one for the fantasy garage. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so yeah, I, I, it, it did all enormously well, and I think um, globally it did well. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think again, I'm trying to think what the numbers are now, but it was similar numbers in, in the in the end uh, as to what the first first car was. Maybe a little bit bit higher right, figure. Right. Um, but yeah, it, you know, in the great scheme of things, there are not that many of them. No, you're dead right. On them, so there was a thousand and seventeen sport shift coupes. There yeah. were two hundred and sixty of the manuals, which we'll come to next, and ninety-one manual roadsters and two hundred and seventy-two sport yeah. shift yeah. roadsters. That's it. Yeah. So more than the, if you add all that up, it's more than the, the original car, but still not a massive amount, you know. And yeah. Also, a car that went out of production and then straight into collector territory. Yes, you know, in a yeah. funny kind of way. There's never been a kind of a, you know, a, a big drop. That's and that's, a, that's, that's a bad point because most cars go to yeah. uh, not, not quite that that wilderness. Yes, where, yeah, and, yeah. Not not with these. No, they went straight to collector, didn't they? Yeah. What what was interesting about the end of it, and we'll we'll, we'll talk a bit more about the run out in a, in a moment. But it, it felt like a moment in time where actually the market. And customers in general could see this was the end of an era. You know, rather than quite often an era ends and you, you look at it retrospectively and think, oh yeah, it's all over and it's too late. Well, <coughs> it felt like the market understood, actually, we've got this last opportunity to buy a big naturally aspirated V12 engine. L let's ju jump on the opportunity. And so there was a spike in demand at the end of V12 Vantage S in yeah. its life. Uh, People which actually great. saying, I want another one. Yeah. Because it will last me for a bit if I buy another one. Yeah. So there were a few people, weren't there? I can think of quite a few people that went went for almost all three variations, you know, first one, an S, and then one of the one of the last cars at the end. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So this was creeping into now the Andy Palmer era. So we, we had Auric Betts. Mm -hmm. Um but Andy Palmer joined the company. Would that have been 2016? 2014. Was it 2014? 2014. Yeah. 2014. Wow. Okay. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So V12 S was already on the market. Yeah. And it had a sport shift gearbox. And um, Steve, you you remember sort of the way the car came to market in terms of the manual option <laughs> yeah. um, appearing? Yeah. I mean, basically. Uh, Another great kind of it's a story we can talk about now because it's enough time involved, really. But yeah. there was a kind of little inner skunk works at Gaydon with a small team of people that had all done 25 years plus and were kind of working together almost under the radar within engineering yeah. in a little hidden kind of porter cabin in a workshop. And we're doing all sorts of weird and wonderful things, including trying out the, a manual shift on the um, on, on the on the uh, sports shift gearbox so a bit it all been kept very quiet because at the time the, the mood of the company was to go more down the road of automatics and sports shift cars mm -hmm. and manuals are really falling off the off the grid a little bit you know but then Andy came along being a transmission engineer caught wind of the project saw the car drove the car went that's it let's get it into production you know so and it's things like that. The British motor industry is full of little stories like that. Yeah. You know, other car makers have done it over the years. And um, and the V12 has been like that all the way from birth, really. It's a what-if kind of car. Like, what would happen if we did that? And then the next thing you know, someone 
we build it, we like it, put it into production, other people like it and they buy them. And yeah, so it's it's been an enthusiast car, not just by the people who own them, but the people who designed and engineered them and built them. Everybody loves the car internally, and that's why I think everyone's excited about the new one, because here we go again, you know. Yes. Just when you thought it was all over, it's not. You know, there's another car, similar recipe. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and uh, yeah, so it's fabulous, really. But yeah, that that's kind of how it came about. It was a, and that's the thing about us. We're small enough to be able to do things that are really niche. You know, we are a niche, really, in the industry. We're a tiny, tiny player. If you look at the, the contribution to the 80 million cars a year that are made globally, yeah, we make 6,000 or so. You know, so yeah. we are a tiny little niche player, anyway. But then to be able to do things like this. It's just great, isn't it? And that's what all of us in this room, uh, we all love about the brand, is that you never quite know what's coming next and keeps it all exciting. And, and I think yeah. the buyers of the, of the V12, they, I, mean, I think they bought into that enthusiasm, that skunk works. It wasn't mm. a, here's a commercial car, we can sell it, we can make a profit. Yeah, it's not a spreadsheet car. Yes, I don't think, yeah, yeah. good point, Steve, I don't think, isn't it? More a case of the opposite way around. It's like, <laughs> here's the car, Right, we get the calculator out. Let's try and work this out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can we get away with this? And, and actually, how much is it going to be? You know, and, yeah. and it really what? And you know, because you've been involved in those sort of meetings yes. at the planning stage of, I'm sure we've been to this dealership over the last seventy odd years and said, got an idea about this car, bit different. What do you think? Do you think you can sell any? And over the seventy odd years, HWM has sold everything that we've ever come up with, really. Yeah. yeah. Just, just and, and also including coming to us with ideas for, for things. So Agreed. But I, I think all of these projects, you hit the nail on the head, it starts from a point of passion and a love of cars rather than a love of spreadsheets. And yeah. that's that's why, you know, people buy into it. That, yeah. Yeah. We, it, it's, it's talking the same language as the people yeah. who buy the product. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah. Um, so so that was that was V V12 Vantage S manual, and as we said, it's quite a rare car. So two six two hundred sixty coupes, ninety one roadsters towards the end of its life, and then there was the final version of V12 Vantage. Now the timing on this was just exceptional, and it's rare that this happens. But um, Aston Martin went to Le Mans, and this was two thousand and seventeen, and they managed to win both the GT classes. Yeah. Um, and uh, Johnny Adams took his win on the final lap. Yeah, yeah. 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 So I remember seeing classic Aston Martin oh, race. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. final lap. You know, of a twenty-four hour race, it was one <laughs> yeah. in the final lap. Absolutely incredible. Yeah, um, in a car, in the halo colours of the green with the yellow stripe, and the following week, Aston Martin launched their final run out of the VH Vantage platform, and that was V8 AMR and V12 AMR. And of course, the race car had a V8 engine in it, um, but nevertheless, both V8 and V12 were offered to market in the same halo colours. And it, it just, you know, it was a marketing exercise. Yeah. It, it, it was just amazing. It just kind of yeah. all came together beautifully. It really did, didn't it? Yeah. yeah. And of course, although there were the halo colour schemes, you could have, well, there, was, there were various options, weren't mm. there, in terms of different colour schemes or anything you like, you know? Yes. And uh, again, I'm sure you've got some stories about about Q cars. In fact, Very I can think of one right now. Yeah, yeah. Hello, Nick, because I know you're listening. Uh, your car's a bit special, as we know, uh, one off. And there's one I was involved with, which again was a one off. And uh, fabulous. I mean, again, some of the best fun I've ever had 
helping people come up with an idea and watching it go through to being produced you know as a, and there's some other cars as well the, uh, uh, the there's three cars within the within the AMR V12 Vantage production three of those cars were built for three chaps that all knew each other all had the previous generation mm. Roadster yep. 12 and they sat down with us and said look we, we want to do something a little bit different and we want this we want that and there was lots of like little subtle options that were incorporated in all three cars but e- each of the three cars had its own colour scheme yes yeah and uh, they, they they were known as the free AMR Ego uh, I can't say the word uh, Amigos oh right AMR yeah, Amigos. <laughs> oh yeah exactly yeah <coughs> so the free Amigos let's call on that for a minute but the AMR um yeah, and, and they were just a fabulous, and we had so much fun with those cars, uh, watching them being built, and there was all sorts of stories in the behind the scenes that went into those those cars. And actually, what we did right at the end was got the three cars back to Gaydon, once they'd all been delivered, mm-hmm. back to Gaydon. We emptied out the atrium, we, and actually all three guys drove their cars into the atrium. That's the only time we've ever let a customer drive a car, their own car, into the building. And we, it was just fabulous, you know. So again, that was a w- wonderful way of celebrating the end of that that whole model line of, of VH uh, Vantage cars, really. So I think I think there really was this mood of this is the last opportunity, and I think that's why people chose to celebrate the end of it by going a bit wild and and doing some different bits with their cars because they recognised there would never be an opportunity to spec a naturally aspirated V12 like that ever again. Yeah, mm. yeah. Um, and the, the the AMR versions did come with a few extra bits so they made they made 200 V8s and 100 V12s and we could have done with 500 V12s frankly (laughs) it was massively oversubscribed which was great I think if anything it probably took Aston by surprise because you know if you look at the numbers that there were more V8s being built than V12s because I think that the the, the anticipation was that would be um, the waiting but but yeah no people desperately wanted the last Mm. of the V12s and it had um, a 595 brake horsepower upgrade and that gave it, it, it that was done by having magnesium manifolds um, and critically a full length titanium exhaust <laughs> which was available so you can you can put it on any V1200 S as an upgrade and we I can remember we had a, a factory car here once to give V12 customers an opportunity to try this power upgrade and every customer that tried it went up the road and by the time they'd um, opened the loud pedal, they just, yep, I'll have it, I'll, I'll take it, because the, it was the noise. Yeah. The noise is just incredible with the uh, yeah. titanium exhaust. So, um, yeah, that added some real experience to the car. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. So now we move on to, well, what do we call the new generation of Vantages? Does it have a name? Is it Series 2? Is it going to be a generation, is it called Generation 2, this, this new Vantage compared to the... Hold on. Well, it's called V12 Vantage Final Edition. Well, I guess that's probably in brackets almost, isn't it, really? I mean, yeah. Yeah. At the moment, it's it's V12 Vantage, isn't it? Yes. And I don't suppose anyone's had to explain which one it is yet because we haven't built any. No. But once we get them out into the field, you're going to get people on the phone saying, I've got a V12 Vantage or I want to buy a V12 Vantage. Yeah. And the first question you're going to have to ask is, which one? 
Yes. Well, it was a bit like the Vanquish, isn't it? One. Yeah, yeah. A bit like that, yeah. A bit like a 911, for that matter. Yes. You've got your phone <laughs> shuts, you want to buy a 911. Which one? They've been making them since 1965. Yes, know? yeah. So I dare say it'll, yeah, we'll come up with some, or somebody will come up with some terminology for it, and that may well be second generation or whatever. So but, I'm... Uh, uh, Am I surprised or not surprised? I mean, I'm, I'm surprised that the V12 Vantage, the, the latest version has come out because I seem to recall at the time that if they were put, going to put a V12 in a, in a Vantage, because they were asked this when the V8 was launched, mm-hmm. it would totally change the dynamic of the car when we're not going to go down that route. Yeah. But we've been here before. You know, yes. The, 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 there's, there's a little thing, well, what if, you know, shall we try this? And so there's some engineers keeping very quiet at the back of the room that's and their chin going, mm, yeah, and marketing are going, you know, I don't know, marketing might be going, <coughs> we had a damn good time with the first generation of a V12, so yeah. can we try it again? So, Guy, over to you. We've now got the, the V12 Vantage Final Edition, and Final Edition, that, that that is the case now, isn't it? Well, yeah, I, I think it will certainly be the last time a V12 engine will go into a Avantage um, in one way, shape, or form. So, yeah, I think I think it's it, it's the end of the V12 Vantage format um, that we're entering into as an era now. So, yeah, it, it's a, a really critical point. Um, and again, I think that same mood, customers recognise that um, this kind of car will not be available in the future and so um, yeah I mean the initial the initial response has been fantastic it, but it's interesting it, it, the mood or the noise around V12 Vantage existing has been rumbling along ever since the Speedster yeah the V12 Speedster came yeah, about and exactly I guess if nothing else the Speedster why did we why did you do the Speedster I think because we could I think it was we a could. kind of a right. let's do something that is Extreme and again a collector's piece from from word go. It was it was a limit, uh, Le Mans. Did it have so, a link to it? I can't remember. No, not really. I mean, Speedster is another car. When you look at it, you think, can't believe we've sold eighty eight cars without a windscreen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and somebody asked me once when we were selling them, how fast did it go? And I said, well, how strong is your neck? You know, because you've got to, <laughs> you need your helmet on, you know, because there is a tiny little bit of perspex as I had a sort of bug deflector, and that's your lot, yeah. isn't it, really? Yeah. But it's just phenomenal. And again, isn't it great that we can build a car like that, get away with it, and sell it, and off, you know, and they're off to around the world to the, to the owners. And, um, and actually, com- compared to some of the other special projects, even the price of the car was, was you know, relatively modest for a car to be built it's just a tiny number yeah but of course the first question that anyone looking at it and knowing what we're like as of old would be like well if you can put it in the car without a roof then could you not put it in a car with a roof and and i'm guessing that one thing led to another and and here we are you know so i guess the answer is we can so we did yeah and i think that's exactly the feedback we were getting at dealer level yeah customers were having the same conversations so you can fit the V12 engine in that chassis. Does that mean? And and no doubt Aston Martin would have had the same feedback centrally. And um, well, there's also there's history, isn't there, with this model range? And it's it, it, it's part of what modern era Aston represent. Big engines in small bodies um, yeah. has become an Aston thing. Sort of mm, proved mm. good in formula, isn't it? Almost? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 
it made me smile just seeing it written on a piece of paper thinking oh wow yeah that's that's cool there, yeah. there, is, there is something <laughs> re- yes. very reassuring by yeah. seeing a V12 Vantage yeah. there is something about that isn't there yes yeah. and interestingly th- this car as a um, an offering is different to the previous models and the way I see it is it sits almost between V12 Vantage and GT12 where it's just a little bit more focused, there's more aero going on, so it's more overt in terms of its sportiness. Um, But what does please me is that it feels like at the factory there is a focus on making the cars faster, more more nimble, more agile, but without destroying ride quality. They still want to protect the usability. So although I haven't driven the new V12 Vantage yet, um, and all the presentations that I've seen, there was definitely um, a focus on making sure that it was a, a usable, nice, what I would call it a fast road spec chassis setup. Um, and they've got uh, they've got a suspension setup. Well, there's a couple of things they needed to to do. Was one, it's got so much torque. I mean that 5.2 litre V12 twin turbo. Twin turbo. It's just a monster of an engine, and so more than anything the first challenge is trying to manage all that torque going through the rear wheels so they've actually had to soften off the rear suspension a little bit um, and they've got something called tender springs which kind of take out the initial bumps um, in terms of ride quality they just help help manage ride quality um, I, yeah, I get the feeling this is going to be yes a focused but usable car um, and that really pleased me because there's this risk that sometimes there can be too much focus on making a car um, have track pedigree, as it were, and then you end up compromising what a car can do on the road yeah. and ruining the car's on-road ability. So I, this feels really well pitched. Um, it's it's an auto or an auto, but there's two, two reasons for that. I think one, trying to get a manual gearbox that could cope with the torque of that mm. V12. Well, I, I, I hate to think, you know, what... Yeah. what a track gearbox might do it I don't know but it's just You're pretty limited really aren't you yeah, yeah. exactly yeah it's yeah. pretty limited um, and of course the 8 speed ZF is just such a good gearbox yeah. brilliant and so it's strong it's compact lightweight and it makes the car really nice to drive it sounds exciting I mean how many mo- it's a final edition how many cars can be made so they're going to make 333 and um, can someone come in today and buy one? No, instantly sold out. Yeah, yeah. How, how quick is that? That's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. great to see, and it shows that there's that appetite. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Why 333? Where did that come from? Well, that's an interesting question. So we had a little debate about what number it should be, and we knew it had to be around 300. Um, and we, you know, we gave ourselves a bit of plus and minus on what the number could range from and to. And... Uh, and you know somewhere between 300 and 350 but actually when we were trying to think of a number we, we looked at all sorts of things we looked at historic numbers if there was a number that had a meaning to yeah. something you know we went for all sorts of things and in the end it was quite simple really we did 77 177s we've done 99 of various things over years like Zagatos in particular we did 88 Speedsters mm-hmm. so let's go 333 yeah and that's it yeah was that <laughs> And you know we kicked that idea around in a in a few few sort of meetings internally, and you know, and everybody thought, yeah, great idea, it's a perfect number, 
that's it 333 cars I, I think that's great I, do you know I feel that Aston could have sold twice as many quite easily oh, no, absolutely probably. I mean yeah. if, if they've gone already but 666 might have been pushing oh, it yeah, a bit of a tricky <laughs> that number that as well that but, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no, it's funny isn't it and, yeah. but, and then you sit there's a little bit of like oh, we, we should have done more but then if you'd done more would you have sold them that quickly yeah. part of the attraction is because you're not making that many or something that makes people go I've got to have one if you know, if they want the car, and yeah, it's a it's a no brainer, isn't so it? So, what's, what's the uh, what's the price premium uh, for the V twelve over the V eight? So, okay, so it's two hundred sixty five thousand for the V twelve um, plus options. So, it, the average car is somewhere between three hundred and three twenty. So, it's quite a significant price premium yes. over a coupe. Yes, um, but it costs a lot of money to develop a car and, and build only three hundred thirty three. So, it's always that sort of sweet spot and balance it you could build more cars and have a lower retail price but as steve said you know to, to particularly as aston are um you know that they're an ultra luxury brand and it, it, it is certainly managing supply and and leaving the market wanting more is, is really quite important so i i think this is a very responsible approach where um yeah they're making sure they are they are building less than the market needs yeah, and are you uh, for your for your um, for your clients, for your customers? Are, are you specking some now? Are you? Yeah, so that they they they've all been specked. And is, there, been, is there a particular flavour that's coming through? Is there a, a certain spec that people go for? There isn't. There isn't a certain spec. There seems to be a, a really wide range of cars, and so the interesting thing about this 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 vehicle, the way it can be specced, is you could you could go really bright and really sporty. And it's got this big wing on the back, which is an option. So you can have the right. full wing, all the colours, stripes, and you can really make it um, stand out. Let's 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 talk this rear uh, rear wing. So there's three of us around this table. So yep. let's have a vote. Yeah, I'm going to vote delete, Steve. <laughs> well, if it was mine, I'd probably delete it. But I have to say, of all the rear spoilers I've ever seen on one of our cars, I think this one is the best integrated in terms of. Yeah. You know, you can tell it's a spoiler, but somehow it kind of works with the shape of the car. It does. So either, you know, if you gave me one, I wouldn't, guy, I wouldn't mind which way round it was. But, oh, right. so yeah, but if I was specking my buck screen one with tan leather interior, something, I probably wouldn't have the spoiler. Right, so there's a comment from Steve. <laughs> so, uh, guy, what would you? So, so it is really tricky. It's for me, it's spec sensitive. Yeah. So when you see the bright colours, and and the more overtly spec specs cars you look at them you think well, it just doesn't look right without the wing but equally if you're going for something subtle and under the radar as Steve said in Buckinghamshire green or something along those lines a dark grey actually having that wide body because this is 40 millimetres wider than the Vantage it's already a wide car so there's something about a wide Aston purposeful Aston in a dark colour no wing yeah I, I, that that's okay. that's very cool yeah yeah um, so I, yeah, I think that that's good. And Aston have, have worked really hard on reducing weight. It's, it's not a light car because it's a Vantage with a colossal V12 engine in the front. But um, they, they they've done all sorts of bits. The theme of exhausts, pinching rare and expensive exhausts. Well, they pinched the expensive exhaust out of the Speedster. So that was a, a lightweight exhaust that saves 7.2 kilograms. It's really good. It's got again those ceramic brakes. A really nice lightweight carbon seats available that saves seven kilograms um, yeah I think it, it, it's a nicely specified car mm. um, so we're coming to the end of, of our time on a podcast um, 
Guy, uh, Steve, where do you feel with a V12 Vantage in, in either guys? How will it stand in that Aston Martin history? Guy, what, what do you feel? So, I, one of my frustrations with V12, because I'm a huge <laughs> fan of it, is that I think it's I think it's been a little overlooked and undervalued in the marketplace. Do you? J- just because I think, it, it, as we said earlier, there's almost nothing out there off that era that offers a manual gearbox with a V12 naturally aspirated engine uh, and D's later uh, turbocharged. It, it, it's a rare combination in a sports car like this. So I, I think um, I think actually the whole of the model range is going to be. Um, lifted up in the future as we sort of realise what special cars they were and they really are special cars sat in a wonderful chassis with wonderful steering wonderful brakes if you like driving a v12 vantage is just a wonderful wonderful thing steve you're you're the company historian you know, well you, you, yeah. you know you excellent uh, collector's car all of them yeah. even the one we haven't actually built yet yes <laughs> sold out. Agreed. You know, absolutely yeah. definitely one of our greatest cars and we've not even built them yet you just know it's going to be a great car it's going to be collectible any of them are pick your poison really do you want to change gears with a manual gearbox you know go for one of the original cars or do you want one of the really rare last of the s's with a seven speed box or do you want to do paddle shift and you know any of them literally any of them yeah and, and just do your homework find the car that suits you keep an open mind when you're shopping and enjoy it when you get it. It just will not be disappointed. Just fabulous cars. Gentlemen, I, I really value your time. It's been an um, uh, amazing story about the V12 Vantage. We could carry on with the V600, the GT12, uh, but at the moment we'll, we'll call it a day and we'll go back to those cars, the GT12 and the V600 another time. Fantastic. Gentlemen, thank you very much for your time. Thank Thanks, you. Harry. Well, a great story there of the V12 Vantage, and one place, Gary, that won't be short of V12 Vantages, I'm sure, will be the big event this year, the event that you just simply can't miss, the Aston Martin Heritage Festival. Yes, we here at the podcast and the Aston Martin Heritage Trust, just outside Wallingford in Oxfordshire, are bringing you the biggest event in the world. In the world anywhere, for Aston Martin fans. It's happening at Brooklands, uh, and it's on the 14th of August, isn't it? So uh, tell us more. What can we look forward to? It is. It's going to be the second one, Uh, Wayne. We had the first one up in Dallas Burston, I think it was called, uh, last year. That was just after the uh, COVID restrictions were were relaxed and that was such a great success and we just had to do another one so this is our second one 14th of august at the brooklyn's museum there's a lot to celebrate all aston martins are welcome please do don't just think it's because it's a it's a brooklyn's it's going to be dealing with old cars it certainly is not there are going to be three special theme displays there is going to be pre-war cars and some of the aston martin uh, pre-war cars will be going up the famous hill i think that'd be great fun to see so there'll be the pre-war cars we'll be looking at 75 years of david brown purchasing aston martin lagonda can you believe aston martin lagonda 75 years ago wayne incredible Amazing. yeah and of course he uh, was living at the very place that you mentioned earlier that you're going to be visiting on a future episode at felton in middlesex that's where he was yeah absolutely so we'll be having 75 years of that and also 50 years of the well, what should we call it? The the classic Aston Martin V8. Trouble is, when you refer to Aston Martin V8, 
you know, it's been used a few times. So this is the the, the classic uh, Aston Martin V8 that we all know and love from that era. So we're celebrating those. So we've got the pre-war, we've got the David Brown, we've got the V8s. So it's going to be plenty there for Aston Martin viewers. We're going to have so many trade stands. There's the, the museums itself is going to be open. It's going to be plenty of parking space. The cars are going to be parked in eras. So it won't just be random parking. As soon as you turn up, you'll be directed to your era. And the whole Brooklyn's uh, museum site will be available for you to, to wander around and look at these magnificent cars and Concorde as well, which, which is there. Now, I can hear you're tempted. You said, Gary, where can I get the tickets? Well, all you have to do is go to our festival website. So if you want to join us for a great day out, celebrating all things Aston Martin, this is turning out to be an annual festival. I'm sure we will do another one, though I may be shot down by the chairman. We never know. But if you go down to Aston Martin Heritage Festival, co.uk you will find how to purchase your tickets uh, alternatively go to amht.org.uk and follow the link from there so there you go it's uh, it's in august it's not that far away tickets are really selling very very well we hope to have a record-breaking number of cars i think at dallas we had over 600 650 cars and i think we're going to be breaking that this year so the sun will be out it'll be a lovely day come and join us Amazing. Aston Martin Heritage Festival.co.uk for your tickets. Also, have a look on that website because there's some cool pictures of Aston Martins racing at Brooklands in period. Very, very yes. good stuff, including the test hill, which amazingly has no trees on it. Now it's in a forest. That's fantastic I, to see that picture. I, yes, I've, I've walked up the, the, the pathway next to that test hill. We've done a recording there. Uh, we're going to cover Brooklyn's history of Aston Martin uh, in a future podcast, I, f- I think I forgot to mention. And um, we uh, we walked up the test hill. Uh, the, the, and Wayne, that is steep, my friend. It is. You know. Now, as you know, you've met me, and I'm a fine figure, athletic <laughs> build, but I was knackered at the top, I'll tell you. So, <laughs> so good luck to these cars doing that. It's worth the walk, though, because if you continue on past the summit of the test hill, you get to a bridge which takes you over the original 1907 banking at Brooklands. And uh, on its first ever motor race in 1907, when it was opened, it attracted 10,000 people to that circuit. And, of course, it was to become the home and the birthplace of British motorsport and aviation. They made all sorts of amazing aeroplanes there as well, like the Wellington Bomber. Um, And you can look around the museum there. So it's going to be a fantastic day out for you. Aston Martin fans, get your tickets. And, of course, don't forget you can get in touch with us here, as ever, on the podcast, because... I mean, Gary and I, we sit here, we think we know what we're doing. We don't, haven't got a clue, really. We want to hear from no, you. No. You need to tell us what you want to hear, basically, because we need your help. So get in touch, astonmartinheritagepodcast.com. Click the contact button on there. Send us your message. Send us your stories. Let us know if you know anyone who could share a story with us. And you never know, we might be covering them here on the podcast. It's all about the stories, Gary. It certainly is. Please don't be shy. Please do get in contact. We need your input. We need your ideas. We need your enthusiasm. If Even if you don't want to appear on the podcast, just say, hey, Gary, hey, Wayne, what about this as an idea? Someone uh, came up to me uh, recently and said it'd be great uh, to have something on Nimrod. And I think, Wayne, I think that could be a good idea. So even if you have just a one or two ideas, do let us know and we'll try and get those together. I think the only way we could 
really do the Nimrod story justice, though, is if we did record that live from Le Mans in France. So I think we're going to have to organise that. But, uh, oh, yeah, 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 uh, Gary, right. I can't talk anymore. I've got to go because I hear the tickets for the Aston Martin Heritage Festival are selling out fast now that we've mentioned them. <laughs> so I've got to get on there and get mine booked. So from me, Wayne Scott, see you later. And from me, Gary Taylor, see you next time. The Aston Martin Heritage Podcast. Subscribe and get new episodes delivered to your device automatically via AstonMartinHeritagePodcast.com.